What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the Marty Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Jared. I'm joined here by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. What up, film fans? And Tommy. Hello. So today we're breaking down Shutter Island, the 2010 film directed by Martin Scorsese, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Mark Ruffalo, Ben Kingsley, Michelle Williams, and Emily Mortimer. But before we get into uh, first impressions, want to go over some stuff. So as I've mentioned before on the podcast, but if you're listening for the first time in a while, Wisecrack is now doing articles. Check out our articles at medium.com slash Wisecrack. We now have a partnership with Medium. We've been working really hard on it. So subscribe to the publication and check us out as we venture into a new platform. Second thing I want to bring up is that we're restarting our South Park podcast in two weeks when South Park comes back up. Ryan's going to be joining us. We're going to get the whole crew back together, and we're going to be tackling South Park. It's called Respect Our Authoritas, so check that out on iTunes and subscribe. Last thing I want to bring up, I am going to be attending the Austin Film Festival this year. They invited me as a panelist, and I'm going to be there. I'm going to be meeting with writers. I'm going to host a panel. If you guys want to come meet me there... Uh, they're offering $25 off badges for Wisecrack fans using the promo code Wisecrack25. It's October 24th through 31st in Austin, Texas. I know we've got some fans in Austin. So if you want to meet me there at the Austin Film Festival and uh, meet some writers and do some panels with me, check us out. Go to austinfilmfestival.com. There's also going to be a link in the description to get $25 off a badge. Hope to see you guys there. But without further ado, let's get first impressions about Shutter Island Tommy, let's start with you. What do you think about this movie? Tell me about the first time and recently. Yeah, uh, yeah I, the first time I saw it, I remember really liking this movie, actually. I think the I, I was sort of clouded a little bit. Uh, I, the reaction to the movie was a little bit muted, so I, I didn't have like super high expectations, even though it was Marty Scorsese. And I, I, I went to it, and I was really impressed. I was like, what is everyone talking about? This is great. Uh, the second time around, I was... Uh, I was a little bit. My my reaction was a little bit more muted. Uh, I still think there are great things in this movie. There's so many great shots. The scene with uh, Leo and Michelle Williams, and he's cradling her, and the ashes are falling. It's one of the, it's just breathtaking. As is you know the scene where all the papers flying, and he's looking at the dead Nazi. All those scenes are just wonderful. It's got a great gut punch of an ending. But uh, the middle the middle act, the second act of this movie is like really. Uh, it, it's, it keeps going. It's very episodic, and it keeps repeating itself. And it, I found myself like, get to the lighthouse, Leo. Let's just get to the lighthouse. <laughs> All right. Ryan, what about you? Um, I kind of had the opposite uh, um, experience as Tommy. The first time I saw this movie, I was super psyched because it, like, it looked like Scorsese kind of getting a little out of his element doing a true, like, I don't even know, you know, a true detective story, uh, which he hasn't really done and uh, a mystery, rather. Um, but I kind of had a very big eye roll at the end of this movie the first time <laughs> yeah. I saw it. You know, like when it finally is revealed about what's going on. And then, and yeah, like, so the first time I saw it, I, I, don't, I think I left kind of with a little bitter taste in my mouth. But then this second time, this is only the second time I've really seen it. And so I kind of got to watch the whole thing knowing the ending, and I liked it way more. Uh, honestly, I I, I kind of saw what he was doing, the misdirection cues he was giving the whole time, and it kind of made me realize how well structured the movie is. Whereas the first time you're just experiencing it, and it's and I was really into the movie up till the end. You know, I I, I did kind of I did like it, and then I, I thought it kind of deflated at the end. But now I like it more. I, I I to me I think my big takeaway the second time seeing it is just how like Scorsese obviously is a master. But and he and he has every element of filmmaking like under control like except I think writing is the big 
it, it can go either way, you know, like because he doesn't write his screenplays. But so his movies are always well directed, but it's only as good as the writing. And when you're literally at the end of your third act and you're having Ben Kingsley spell out what just happened to you on a fucking chalkboard, <laughs> you know, I don't think that that is good writing or it didn't seem it doesn't come off that way. It comes off as like just a whole lot at once it, or just the, the ending is just I don't think well executed at all uh, still. And so that's kind of my main takeaways from the movie. Yeah, there's a whole lot of monologuing in this movie. Yeah. It's like uh, Leo goes from uh, character actor to character actor as they monologue at him. It's like Jackie right. Haley, Patricia Clarkson, Ted Levine, and then Ben Kingsley for the showstopper. Uh, but <laughs> Yeah, I, I had the same experience as Ryan, actually. Actually, mm. Ryan, we saw this together. We saw it opening oh. night at AMC in Burbank, I think, with a whole bunch of our fellow classmates. And I also didn't like it. For the first time I saw it, I just thought... It was too obvious. Spoilers, by the way, we're going to have to talk about the ending. Um, but basically, by the time the storm ruined their clothes and they had to put on the clothes of the patients, I was already wondering if Leo was a patient. And there's an hour of movie left after that happens. Mm -hmm. And so I was frustrated because I felt like all I was supposed to get out of it was this big Fight Club-esque twist of, oh, you... Uh, the the perspective that you've been shown throughout the movie is a false one and i think that was just such a letdown but similar to ryan going into this second viewing 10 years later knowing that i appreciated just how eerie the movie is how well put together it is of course dicaprio great as always my favorite part the mauler section where he's standing over the dying nazi guard is amazing and yeah i i think I've grown to appreciate what drew Scorsese to this script because I think you have to, in a time, you know, Fight Club and A Beautiful Mind and all these movies that have these perspective twists where something or someone isn't real or there are delusions, why would a filmmaker, especially one like Scorsese, who could seemingly do anything that he wanted, be attracted to a movie that functions on a conceit that is so overdone? Like, why would he do it? And I don't know. We'll get into it later. I think I've maybe figured it out, but I have come to appreciate this movie and think that it's actually quite interesting. So without further ado, let's go into a recap. In 1954, Marshals Teddy Daniels and Chuck Owl, Alou something, arrive at Shutter Island, a mental hospital for the criminally insane, to investigate the escape of a patient named Rachel Solando. After interrogating the patients and staff and being denied the access he requires, Teddy comes up empty-handed. Meanwhile, Teddy experiences visions from the horrors he saw liberating Dachau during World War II. In a vision, Teddy's deceased wife tells him that Rachel is still on the island. Upon interrogating the patients further, he mentions the name of the person responsible for his wife's death, Andrew Latis, and comes to believe the patients are hiding his whereabouts on the island. After further thought, Teddy and Chuck come to believe... The island is a front for top-secret government experimentation on patients. Rachel is found, but due to a storm, Teddy can't get off the island. Teddy has more visions of him helping Rachel kill her kids and of his deceased wife telling him to find and kill Andrew Latis. When the backup generators go out, Teddy goes into the high-security prison and finds George, his contact who told him about Latis. George tells him that this whole thing is a charade put on for him. Teddy tries to get to the lighthouse where he believes Andrew is being held. Unable to reach it, he meets the quote-unquote real Rachel Solando in a cave who confirms his suspicion of government experimentation on parents. 
When Teddy goes back to the hospital, Dr. Cowley tells him that his partner Chuck doesn't exist. He came here alone. Thinking they're experimenting on him, he heads to the lighthouse where Dr. Colley reveals to Teddy that he's been a patient for two years and that he is really Andrew Latis, and he invented the identity of Teddy to distract him from the fact that his wife drowned their kids and he killed her in retaliation. The investigation into Rachel Solando was a last-ditch effort to rehabilitate him through role-playing before they have to lobotomize him. Andrew confronts his delusions, but soon after, we see him identifying as Teddy once again, where a group of orderlies lead him away, presumably to be lobotomized. End of movie. Alright guys, before we go on, want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at Simple Habit. So I talked about Simple Habit last time. Simple Habit is an app that allows for meditations to help with specific problems in your life. Uh, whether you're nervous about a big meeting at work, parenting issues. It's not just about teaching you to meditate for the sake of meditating uh, or that necessarily it's good for you. It's it's a mindfulness thing. So I've started using Simple Habit. Um, one of the things that it really helps me with is leaving work at work. Um, I usually will go immediately to some form of entertainment, whether it be a movie or a TV show or something like that. But if you're anything like me, Chances are it's very easy to watch television and still freak out about work at the same time. So there's actually a really helpful meditation that they have called Leave Work at Work. And you listen to it for about 15 minutes and it really helps kind of divorce you from the things that you just got done during the day. So it has 65,000 five-star reviews on iOS and Android. You can go to simplehabit.com slash show me to get 30% off premium subscriptions for the first 50 listeners. Once again, that's simplehabit.com slash show me for 30% off a premium subscription. Once again, simplehabit.com slash show me for 30% off. You can use the link that we have at the bottom of this live stream or in the RSS feed. And now back to the show. And remember, make a habit out of going to simplehabit.com. <laughs> All right, so I cut you off, Ryan. What were you going to say? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I do remember one thing I was going to say is that I find it, among other things, I find it ludicrous or just highly uh, unlikely that two people as insane as those two people ended up together and had three kids. You know what I mean? Like, I understand one person ending up insane, but... They're well, well they were. They, he wasn't insane until until uh, that happened. He until that so he happened. Totally I mean, he's normal, just, a totally normal well, no, person. You know, the Trump, now the he Trump, he's a detective and stuff. Well, he, no, he, he was, was a detective. detective. It's the trauma. Or, or of what, the war. I mean, the, I mean, you know what I mean. Like, like this fake role playing part is is what I'm saying. Like, like he, now he's so insane because of that one traumatic experience that. It drove him that bonkers. I don't know, man. It's it's two experiences. It's all the shit that he saw in the war okay. and liberating Dachau, then seeing his wife murder his three children. I don't know. That yeah. that'll break even the hardest man. Yeah, it's about living in your deluded fantasy versus dealing with your horrific reality. Sometimes, you know, I mean, we all create sort of fantasies for ourselves. He's just created a, a crazy fantasy for himself just to to get by. I guess this might be my ignorance of mental illnesses, but you know, I, I mm. like that one woman obviously was, you know, had something wrong with her, but then it's it, to me, can, can experiential experiences like that actually drive you that crazy in real life and not in the movies? I mean, I know, I know. Uh, you, PTSD well, I, is. I, I mean, look, if anything can, an event like that can, 
right? I mean, I don't think it really gets much worse than experiencing the kind of horrors of World War II, specifically a concentration camp, and then your wife killing your three kids. I I don't think the movie's interested in, like, the reality of, you know, psychosis. I think it's just about, you know, this this horrific thing and, like, Scorsese, you know, using it, the sort of melodrama. It's the melodrama of it all that I think that he's going for. Yeah, I guess it was just... Okay. Yeah, it's a small thing. Anyway, continue, Jared. Well, the first thing I want to talk about is just the form of this movie. I think it's one of the most interesting things to talk about is just how everything, every tool in the filmmaker's toolkit is being used to bring us into this warped, Teddy's warped mental space. I'm just going to call him Teddy. Technically, his name is Andrew, but (laughs) we're just going to call him Teddy for the sake of this podcast. But there's so much stuff going on that really, unless you remember really well, only makes sense when you see it for the second time in terms of what's going on. So just a couple things. During the fairy sequence at the beginning, there's this digital back projection, which is kind of deliberately unconvincing (laughs) in a sense. Um, And during that scene, there's actually throughout the whole movie, the cutting is deliberately sloppy at times. So, for example, on the ferry, sometimes the mouths don't fit the words of the characters in the foreground a second before it cuts to the reverse shot and then it's all of a sudden in sync again. Um, There's images of his wife. It freeze frames into a still image when it is conjured up. All these things that in a normal movie would be very jarring and seem like a mistake, but it's here to either make us question the validity of what we're seeing or just bring us into the subjectivity of Teddy. Yeah, I think the movie questions. Uh, I, I, I wonder if this is deliberate because I think they they don't even try to hide the twist. Like from minute one, Leo is losing his shit. Uh, yeah. So and the movie and his perception is always skewed. Very early on, those, those examples you said are, happen within the first five ten minutes of this movie. So you're sort of primed to be like, there's something wrong with this guy from minute one. That's why I have to think that Scorsese was aware that it wasn't a big reveal. Yeah, one hundred. I don't think he cares. I don't think he cares about the reveal at all. Yeah, I think what? there's kind of a. What do you mean he doesn't care? I think he's setting it up that he's he's okay with the audience being ahead of the movie. I think he's okay with the audience knowing that Teddy is you know a crazy person on this. I I have to believe that too. Well, I mean, I, I think they he wants you, that's obviously the question he wants to be in your mind, but I don't think that it's like. I do think this whole movie is like a big reveal. Like I, I think that he was very carefully crafting the reveal and cared about it affecting the I, audience. I think he gives oh, you yeah. too, he gives you too, too much, much too many hints. I actually think the reveal is you spend the whole movie being like, "Come on, wake up out of your fantasy, Teddy. Come on, you're a crazy person on this island." And at the end of the movie, your the reveal is you should have you should have been happy with him being the crazy person on the island. That's what he wanted. That was his happiness. Like that's the reveal at the end of the movie that the delusion is what we should have been rooting for, not the re- the horrific reality. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, a couple other things I just want to get through. So the bright light of the lightning is over the top <laughs> exaggerated. Uh, when introducing the wards, there's a whip pan that kind of hides a cut in a very sloppy way. There's no way they would let that get away from a Hollywood movie. They'd get away with that. Um, again, when they're bunking him and Chuck, it's a cut too quickly. They cut too quickly away from Chuck in a way that seems very jarring and once again would be something that no editor would. If this wasn't deliberate, that editor would have never found work again. Um, the music is blaring when they arrive on the island. And real quick, let's call her name out. Thelma Schumacher, my girl. R.I.P., right? She's the one that died recently. 
No. <laughs> no, that's I'm sorry, that's Tarantino's editor. That's Sally Sally Minky, I think. My bad. Yeah, yeah she's uh, old. She's super old, just like Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Uh one of my favorite ones is when they go into the top security prison where he meets George. We see all of this rain uh falling on the ground, but we only hear a little bit. It's like we see more rain than we hear. And that's very disorienting and something that I've never seen before. Um, Would you call this his most impressionistic film? Um, Or just subjective? I I don't know. Maybe the only other one I can think of is Bringing Out the Dead. It's hard for me to say impressionistic because I think that he's actually making a very literal statement here in the sense that he's really just trying to get you into the head of a crazy person. Not yeah. necessarily like a Jordowski movie where he's representing "quote unquote" objective reality in this stylized way. Yeah, impressionism is the wrong word. I just meant <laughs> but, subjective, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I, but that's like that's something that's all over his career. I mean, even Goodfellas with all the erratic cutting, especially during the helicopter sequence towards the end, where he's all coked out and paranoid. He's always True. using the camera to put you into that. Yeah. character's perspective. I think in this one, it's just he has an added layer in that he's dealing with a mental illness. Right, yeah. The Goodfellas one's a good point of reference. Uh, so the flashbacks are very saturated with color. The island is very desaturated. The storm, after they speak to that woman who writes Run, the storm is just seemingly over the top <laughs> in how crazy it is. Um and then, interestingly, after he confesses, the grounds are also the grounds are saturated and bright for the first time. I didn't really know how to read that, though. Is it now that his fantasies are in sync with reality? What do you think? Are you saying that the storm is his mind, and that you know well, he has to get, go through the the tempest, sort of? At the very end, in that last shot where he's talking with Chuck or whatever his, mm-hmm. it's revealed to be his psychiatrist, whatever that guy's name is, we see the grounds through these very bright colors that previously we've only seen in his dreams. Because up until then, the and it's not just the weather; it's that all of the shots of the island are extremely desaturated and very gray. And I'm wondering if there's any significance in that shift in the end. Yeah, no, I I definitely feel like that is supposed to signify that he does remember. He, I mean, he he remembers his past now, and it's just <laughs> he doesn't. It's horrible. He doesn't want anything to do with it. It's mm-hmm. sort of interesting that you know, you know, when you remember things, it's you know, this bright, vivid colors, but it's really horrific. Usually, I think you associate sort of bright, vivid colors with like uh, like beautiful, you know, great things, but here it's horrible. <laughs> but do you think that the bright, vivid cover colors are supposed to denote? an objective reality like we can believe that his memories of Dachau are as they happened but everything that's happening on the island is filtered through some sort of insanity or something Mm -hmm. is I mean I'm actually struggling with that as well because the interesting thing about some of the Nazi flashbacks is that especially when there's the guard who's bleeding out all of those papers are just flown in the air in a very dreamlike very (laughs) dreamlike thing so i don't really know what to think of that i think we are meant to believe that those events did happen but maybe it's just been colored in his mind and dramatized in a certain way 
Mm-hmm. I mean, or is it supposed to be because uh, is it supposed to associate with sort of the ash, the ember that is falling on him when the house is burning? Is that kind of the is he correlating the two sort of horrific oh, events that have that happened to it. him? Maybe. Huh. Interesting. He All is right, the storm, Jared. The storm <laughs> is him. And he, the first shot is literally fog. And then he comes out of the fog out of the storm he is a monster is it better to live as a monster or die as a good man monsters equals storms or something that's my, the meaning i showed it to you here you go folks <laughs> thank you ryan well guess what ryan it's time for there we go it's time yeah! for me to get meta. it's time for it's time for me to get meta you ready for this Let's ryan it, i need you to, i want you to call me out if you don't if you don't buy this i'm ready it, hit me with your best shot all right so one of the central questions of this movie, and, and this is kind of what I've landed on until I was like, right before we did this podcast, this came upon me and I was like, oh, wow, this movie actually is really interesting. So one of the central questions of the movie is, what do you do with evil? How do you rehabilitate it? Or do you? Should you identify with and understand evil in an attempt to heal it? So when Teddy first meets Dr. Colley, there's this thing where Teddy doesn't believe that the criminally insane deserve any sympathy. Whereas Dr. Kali believes otherwise. He says something along the lines of, I'm not here to judge my patients. I'm there just to treat them. So I mentioned earlier the horrors that Teddy saw at Dachau. Specifically, he let the SS guard just bleed out after his failed suicide because he believed that he did not deserve sympathy. And then, of course, there's the tracking shot of the Nazis being shot at Dachau, which is the one shot that I really, really remembered from the movie. Um. One of the first things that Teddy sees when he arrives on the island is a plaque that says, remember us, for we too have lived, loved, and laughed. And my question is, is not this, is this film not an exercise in this, bringing us into the subjectivity of an inmate? We start the movie inhabiting the gaze of Teddy, one who dismisses these inmates as insane, but once we realize that we've been inhabiting the very perspective of one such inmate, we recognize them as human. And in a way, I do think maybe, maybe Scorsese is making some sort of comment about cinema in this, in that the charade that Dr. Kali is putting on at the end of the movie is the very charade of cinema. Because unlike other visual narrative arts, cinema has the ability to bring the audience into the character's point of view. And that's what this movie essentially does. It uses its form, like we were just talking about, disjointed editing, flashbacks, exaggerated lighting, and color saturation in order to make us experience the perspective of an insane person. And so I think this question of do you rehabilitate evil is not only a central question of psychology and psychiatry, but one of cinema. I mean, if you want to use an obscene example, one would certainly not want to see a movie that tells the story of Lincoln's assassination from the perspective of John Wilkes Booth. Like, there's no need to redeem him. There's no need to rehabilitate that evil. I think perhaps the more appropriate example would be Nazidom, since this movie deals heavily in imagery of Nazi atrocities. And I think that this is particularly poignant when you talk about people who are dealing with PTSD after World War II. And if we consider the film kind of retroactively, knowing that Teddy, what he went through during the war, we come to agree with Dr. Kali, who believes that, once again, you should treat patients, not judge them. So, Ryan... What do you think? 
I don't think you're full of shit this time, Jared. Um, <laughs> All right. Yeah, I think that uh, I, I obviously Martin Scorsese has dedicated his life to cinema, you know, and I do think he was, yeah, like having a lot of fun playing with the form while also kind of doing this commentary on compassion for the worst amongst us. Um, it, yeah, because you're right. Cinema is the only medium that could possibly get you in the mind of a serial killer, really. I guess, you know, a good book could, too, but not in the way that this, you know, uh, audio-visual experience can. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're, I think you are, you are on to something. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about that, I feel like recently, like, Scorsese's been a little bit under fire a little bit for his sort of depictions of sort of characters and and, and racist and sort of things that they say, especially in, like, Goodfellas or Mean Street and whether or not by having these sort of bad guys say these things, is he endorsing their worldviews? And, uh, I mean, Hell that's interesting no. that... Yeah, no, no, not at all. But there is something, too, like, Scorsese made, made his career of, like, having sort of, you know, troubled protagonists or anti-heroes, Goodfellas, you know, Taxi Driver, all these movies where the people that are on screen are not really very good people. But we are, as an audience, are supposed to empathize with them and sort of understand where they're coming from. And so oh, that's a really I good point. I think that that fits into that sort of theory. Especially, uh, yeah, I mean, bringing up Goodfellas. Goodfellas yeah. is a ride as much as it is a movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you see that uh, that steady cam shot of him entering the club and he's going through the back doors and he's paying off all the doormen, and <laughs> we are in her perspective. We are so impressed by the majesty of this man who seemingly knows everybody and has unlimited connections and unlimited power. And yeah, I mean, I don't think you could make an argument that Goodfellas or Casino or any of those movies doesn't glorify it does this lifestyle. I mean, that's uh, always been the scarce, the criticism, even with like something like Wolf of Wall Street. How yeah, much? Yeah, that's are the we best example that we Belfort? haven't talked yeah. about yet. Yeah, I feel like that one is a bit more ambiguous than the other two, mm -hmm. that, or at least Casino and Goodfellas. In that, I do think there is some kind of a critical edge to the Wolf of Wall Street that I don't think exists in the other two. That's fair. Yeah. Oh, no, I I think they're all kind of critical in their own way, but you're right that, like, the form of Wolf of Wall Street is very much, like, open-ended kind of until the end, uh, uh, but... Yeah, I... Yeah. yeah, I almost think Wolf of, Wolf of Wall Street is more critical of us and how we let yeah. we let someone like you know Jordan into our lives. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, more it's about still us. about an antihero though, kind of yeah. like you were saying before about all of his movies. Yeah. So, do you think that the movie has this kind of balance in the sense that if we have Doctor Colley on one side who says that I'm not here to judge, I'm only here to heal, and then Andrew or Teddy on the other side saying no, these people must be condemned. Is there this balance in the sense that when it comes to psychiatric patients, we should be more, we should humanize them and we should treat them. But when it comes to Nazis, we should just unilaterally condemn them. Or do you think that, do you think that that is kind of just divorced from the Nazi flashbacks? I, don't, I mean, it's hard because I feel like the movie almost comes down on Teddy's side at the end where his argument is, you know, don't help these people. Let them, you know, don't help them at all. And at the end of the movie, he doesn't help himself. He wants to not remember. He doesn't want to be healed. Healing is not the answer in this movie. Living in delusion is. Like, die, die a hero. Don't live a monster is, is essentially okay, the yeah. ending so, of the movie. Okay, so, yeah. So let's talk about that. So he said the last, last thing he says before he's walked off to be lobotomizes which would be worse to live as a monster or die as a good man and so i'm assuming he means that living as a monster would be living 
as somebody who constantly has to revert back to this fantasy of Andrew Latus, or I'm sorry, the fantasy of Teddy. Yes. And, I, I... and then dying as a good man is just going to get lobotomized and becoming a zombie for the rest of your life. Yep. And we're in agreement that he just chooses to die a good man. I think so. I think that's the ending of the movie, right? I think that that's what it suggests, at least. But wait, when it's he's... not it's not him living as a monster. No, he's gonna go get lobotomized at the end of the movie. But like he's the... choosing. And you're saying he knows that? Yes, I think so. But what does he think he's doing? Because he seems to be Teddy again. So does he think, oh, I'm just going to give up to the government that's going to experiment on me? And then how do we read it then if he's not actually Andrew Latus who recognizes that he has this mental disability he, that makes him go in circles with this identity? You know he, what I'm saying? I mean, he makes a choice at the end. Like he knows if they if, the, if they think he's crazy, they're going to lobotomize him. So he makes the decision to pretend to be crazy so they take away his memories. And so he can live out the remainder of his life a zombie, but not thinking he's a monster anymore. Okay, so it doesn't make a difference whether if it's him recognizing that he's crazy, therefore I'll just die a well, I guess that doesn't make sense. Sorry, I'm like talking. I'm talking myself <laughs> no, no, no. into circles. No, him recognizing that he's not cra- him recognizing that he's crazy is is horrible for him. <laughs> he want. I think he would be much happier in his delusions. Mm. See, I, so, I, I never got that reading, Tommy. I mean, that's very interesting. Hmm. Actually, it makes that that makes the ending more interesting to me. But I definitely just saw it as all right. He's not well. Let's take out his brain. <laughs> you know, like like he's he literally slipped back into his fugue state. And, and yeah, I, I, I didn't see it as him having this, you know, pl- literally role playing, but being sm- smart enough and self-aware enough to know what was about to happen to him. I, I, th- I felt that's how I read it. Wait, you, you're not saying that he's role playing at the end. Oh, though, I, right? I think he is. I think he's aware of, I think he's aware of everything. I think he remembers everything. I think he's pretending to be crazy at the end. Oh, of the I see. 100%. That, so that's what, he, yeah, I, I've yes. never even thought about that. Hmm. Interesting. I, yeah, I mean, wh- wow. that, that last line, I, it really suggests to me that like he is very cognizant of who he actually is. Okay. See, to, to me, I think, it was I, agree, a, I think I agree with you because I think that's what I tripped up on when I said, oh, the, what I'm saying doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. To, to me, the last line was like a paradox. Like he basically, he was saying this true thing that, uh, that, that applied in the, while he was as his as the detective as teddy it, it made sense to him but in from what we know the audience it also i'm sorry i'm not articulating this well at all basically i think that he at the end was choosing to live as a mon or to live as a monster instead of die as a good man but then they were taking him off to die because in your mind he reverted back to yeah he, he made the choice to make the delusion he's gonna live and just be like you know even though he's already come out of it before he knows deep down in his subconscious that he is this monster he would rather just live as the monster underneath you know his skin of his role-playing detective guy than come to terms with who he is but then they're gonna go kill him for that yeah, I think I just dis- I disagree. I, I mean, living as the monster would be living with the sins of the past. If he was acknowledging that I I murdered my wife, my wife murdered her my children because I didn't give her help. Like that is living as a monster. That is what being a monster is to him. You know, dying as a good man is dying as what he was doing before all this crap happened, where he was a detective and he was investigating things and he was on the side of the right. Um, like that that is you know dying as a good man. At least to me, at least. 
wasn't dying wasn't dying as a good man being I know I am a monster. I'm gonna go die or sacrifice myself, and you know, like like become lobotomized as the monster, as opposed to as your delusional character you've created. Hmm. I, I would I would argue the lobotomizing is you know living or dying as a good man. Like that is that is that is that. I mean, what what more? What more delusion can you have than just being lobotomized and not not remembering anything, not you know remembering your past, not remembering your sins? Like I feel like that is that 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 that's the the ultimate out for him from his. But while lying to yourself, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, yeah, lying. I mean, the movie's all about delusions, so yeah, it's better to lie to yourself than face reality. So it's a tragic it's exactly. ending. It's, it's exactly, very. It's yeah. It's so sad. I was gonna say it's exactly like <laughs> it's, the movie we did last week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So another thing that I'm going to say bolsters my point about Scorsese commenting on the power of cinema or the responsibility of cinema is that there this film is saturated with allusions to Hitchcock. And oh, yeah. I did not yes. realize this the first time I watched it, but there's actually a great article in The Guardian by Andrew Pulver who points out some of the Hitchcockian references. So one well, of them also uh, before you even say that, you know, it's based we already mentioned Dennis Lehane, the novel it's it's based off of, you know, he did like Mystic River uh, and then every fucking Ben Affleck directed movie, basically <laughs> uh, <laughs> Gone Baby Gone in the town. Um, so the, the, this is a kind of a prolific pulp novelist that got, you know, it's that him got Scorsese kind of doing a, a Hitchcock riff on his novel. So continue. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to go into some of these examples. So there's the camera right under the shower head when the water turns on, which is pulled right out of Psycho. There's DiCaprio peering over the cliffside and deciding that he has to go down slowly, just like in North by Northwest. There's a gun follows its target while affixed to the camera, kind of like a video game, like we see in Spellbound. There's a tree smashing through a wall, just like in Marnie. There's DiCaprio going up the stairs of the lighthouse is shot like Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo. And Max von Sydow plays a creepy, shadowy Nazi that evokes the one in Notorious. <laughs> so those are the ones that Andrew Pulver points out in The Guardian, but he also says that there's probably more. So if you guys listening know of any other Hitchcock references, hit us up, movies at wisecrack.co. But if I were to say that there's any greater meaning to this reference to Hitchcock I mean would you guys you guys are probably the two of the biggest film historians I know would you feel comfortable with the notion <laughs> that Hitchcock Ryan you've seen more movies than anyone I know <laughs> just uh, the idea that I'm a film historian though, is <laughs> to me. Continue. Um, would you feel comfortable with the notion that Hitchcock is the quote godfather of subjective filmmaking yeah, I would say that that's uh, one one of his many titles you could give him, for sure. In the sense that he's known as the pioneer of the guy who tried to bring you into either the protagonist mind view or the antagonist mind view through the manipulation of editing, through camera movement. Maybe he wasn't the first one, yeah, but that, he that, certainly... That would be my only sort of caveat, whether or not... You know, I, I feel like there are people before him that were doing similar things. But yes, for you know, in terms of suspense and you know, bringing you into the psyche of you know, damaged characters, you know, Psycho and Frenzy and all these movies, I mean, that was not typically done. Uh, he changed the motherfucking game. Yeah, not in, a, not in U.S. cinema, at least. 
Yeah. Last thing I want to talk about is violence. I don't really have much to say about this, but I do think it's interesting how Teddy's called a man of violence. One of the guards even tells him that there's nothing to society except violence. The guy even calls it God's gift to humanity. And then one of the crazy patients is paranoid. He doesn't want to leave the island because the H-bomb is outside. Did you guys, other than the fact that... uh, you know, it's part of Teddy's psychological profile that he's dealt with all this violence and he's a violent guy. Was there anything else going around in your mind about this? Well, does this, this is tie back to your uh, critique on cinema itself? I mean, another criticism of Scorsese is his depiction of violence, typically, mm. that people are always saying, is he glorifying, you know, violence in his movies? Um, so is, is that is that more so? Uh, I feel like you have to say more. Like, what would it be saying about violence in that... I guess uh, for your thing, it would be I don't I don't I don't feel like the movie's glorifying violence. I don't I don't I mean I guess I'm bringing my own sort of prejudices into it. Or is it just like apologizing for the fact that, of course, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is a man of violence. He's gone through the worst shit in the Mm -hmm. world. Uh, What what better did you expect from him? Is that or yeah? I mean. Yeah, that's Here, all I've got. Here's what it means to your point, Jared. You know, he's like literally hugging his dead wife. His hands are covered in blood. There's blood on his hands. Martin Scorsese is worried that there's <laughs> blood on his hands from his violent <laughs> movies. There's the meta-ness. Bam. Play that Inception thing. I got you. <laughs> all right. The violence is actually, I think, different than most Scorsese movies, at least that I remember, at least, that I feel like this one is the blood is much redder and more saturated. It's much more like more beautiful, almost like it's almost like a painting, almost it's artsy. It it wasn't gross to me. Like when we're watching, you know, the blood flow out of the Nazi's head, there's something there's just something like beautiful about that image. So there's there's beauty in the violence here, which is interesting. It's like all of those flashback sequences are very majestic. lush. I mean, you talked about that tracking shot where they shoot all the Nazis. I mean, that's a beautiful shot. Uh, yeah. So you're like, you're marveling at this display of violence. Yeah, it's a super <laughs> cathartic shot, yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, all right. You guys have anything else you want to bring up? If not, we're going to go into the mailbag. Anything else? Bring going on. once, going twice. Oh. We got a lot of emails and voicemails about The Dark Knight Rises, oh a movie that people seem to be passionate about. Uh, we're going to go <laughs> into our voicemail. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're going to go into our voicemails. If you want to hit us up with a voicemail, comments, questions, interpretations, whatever you want, 213-534-8807 or 21ElfHut07. We're going to go with Anonymous, who wants to talk about The Dark Knight Rises. Go Anonymous. Hey, Wisecrack. I wanted to comment on <laughs> that someone else left uh, earlier in the stream about the uh, the the noble lie at the end of the Dark Knight Rises, I actually don't think it is a lie because the, the Batman the, the whole series is about um, Bruce using the symbol of the bat to overcome his fear. Um, the symbol dies um, and is given new life in a participation um, of the people of Gotham. So like, he hands them basically gives them the rights to use the symbol. Well, he uses the symbol to inspire them, and then the figure of the Batman dies at the end of the film. And so because of that, more people can take on the Batman identity, which is like a kind of, uh, uh, there need not be the strong man of justice anymore. Now justice is, uh, lies on the shoulders of every, of every individual, which I think is the point. So I don't think it's a lie. I think it's a, it's like an art performance. 
Anyway, that's all. Bye. I, I kind of like this point. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing is that I would like that a lot more if Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character didn't become Batman. I think that's the problem with that sort of thing. Like it feel it doesn't. I don't feel like the symbol is dead. <laughs> it's still it's still alive. What do you yeah, mean, man? It, it. It's like Banksy, dude. You know, his, Banksy's identity is his art. He, I, Banksy could be anybody. It could be Joseph Gordon-Levitt. But Joseph Gordon-Levitt has access to the Batcave. Yeah, it'd be like if Banksy died and, and then like someone else came out as Banksy. <laughs> like, That's what I'm saying. No, we'll never you know. You wouldn't know, I guess. Yeah, you wouldn't symbol. know. <laughs> He's a I like symbol. The, I like the idea of the statue not being representative of the sacrifice of Batman, but an image of what Gotham needs to come to get its sh- needs to become to get its shit together. But once again, if it is, in fact, that the city as a whole, that if the symbol really has evolved, then there shouldn't be just another Batman, which is Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah. It that's my only that's my only thing with that. All right, let's go from Mike. Hey, what's going on, West Track? This is uh, Mike from uh, New York. I'm uh, just calling in about the uh, episode you guys did for showing the meeting on uh, The Dark Knight Rises. Um, <clears throat> I just thought it was really interesting when you guys got into the discussion about the socioeconomic messaging of it, um, and I really appreciate a lot of Jared's comments. I think just quite simply... Um, Nolan isn't shilling for a left or right-wing ideology. I think he's just doing uh, one of the things that he did pretty consistently well across all three installments, which is to kind of make Gotham a character. Uh, One of the biggest digs about the rest of the DC franchise is they treat big fight sequences like, you know, the city is just a rugby field, and you lose sight of what exactly these people are defending or attacking, right, whereas, like, the Marvel franchise is very good about not just reminding us about uh, who uh, is doing the saving, but also what is being saved and whether or not it's worth it. And in Batman Begins, Ra's al Ghul and Batman fight because Ra's al Ghul is saying, look, the city is a den of iniquity and crime, and Batman says it doesn't matter because it's still worth saving. And then the Joker is, look, these people have no moral code and have no uh, um, you know, actual integrity when it comes to what they espouse to believe, and Batman says it doesn't matter, the city's still worth saving. And then finally, Bane comes along and says, you know, look, there's this messaging about there just being wide-scale inequality, the rich keep getting richer, the poor are poorer. Um, there's exploitation, right, in Batman again, you know, to create the symmetry there is, again, the city is worth saving. So I, just, I think it was, you know, a lot to, lot to dig on in this movie for sure, and I respect everybody's comments. I thought on that one piece that maybe it was possible to read too much into it. Uh, thanks, and uh, looking forward to the next episode. God damn, that was a good uh, voicemail. Real good voicemail. Yeah, good. Yeah. That guy should podcast. He talks <laughs> a lot faster and more eloquently than I do. <laughs> yeah. I know, for real. <laughs> Um, I totally am there with him on that. Like I, I, I don't, I, we, we touched on the political message or reading you could read in the film. I don't think any of us were ne- necessarily saying that that's for sure what Nolan was saying. I think Nolan in general is pretty apolitical and, and that he just sees the conflict, you know, he, he likes the nature of that conflict, thinks it's cinematic and, and isn't necessarily taking sides. It's just, he's showing it like it is. Well, yeah. I think there's an interesting question to be raised about when a filmmaker thinks he's being apolitical, but critics think he's being political, case in point, didn't uh, what's his newest movie called again? The, uh, which which the one that came out with Tom Hardy in a plane? Dunkirk. Oh, Dunkirk. Dunkirk. Yeah, Dunkirk was was criticized because I guess through a through the the lens of certain people, I don't know which side of the aisle they're on, but uh, Churchill's choice to sacrifice those people is not something that some people agree with and yet it was romanticized so maybe no one doesn't think he's being political but other people might put him on that pedestal <laughs> yeah i mean it's interesting by sort of display by display by displaying both sides of the argument to sort of create sort of a a multi-leveled sort of 
depiction of this city, people sort of latch on to each side as being, you know, the political statement of the Mm -hmm. movie. When it's really, I think, to this sort of commenter's point, it's more about, you know, creating a world for Batman to theoretically save more so than it is about, you know, admonishing or, you know, going forward with one particular ideology. Over and another. that's how you know it's good art, man, because you can make arguments for both arguments, man. You know what I'm trying to say, man. You know, it's good art. I will say that I, I don't think Nolan, he's never struck me as a particularly political filmmaker i think he's more interested in sort of existential identity issues than he is in uh you know politics yeah i mean we got a whole bunch of emails about the politics thing and the one thing i'll say is that if nolan is a political filmmaker i don't think he's so shallow as to say all right i'm gonna straw man the other side to where the argument is incoherent and then you know because Mm -hmm. that just seems cheap to me the fact that whatever Bane's revolution is built off of is incoherent, that doesn't strike me as a real attempt at criticizing an ideology. So no, I think it's that's criticizing, my whole thing. It's criticizing Bane. Bane sucks. <laughs> He's Bane a bad guy. Sucks. He's a bad guy. All right, let's do one more. This one's from Jacob. Hey, Wisecrack. This is Jacob. I was just listening to your Dark Knight Rises podcast, and I just want to say that this plot hole kind of makes me angry that I, whenever I think about it, um... How does Bruce Wayne get from the Lazarus pit back to Gotham City? That part never makes sense, especially since what you brought up, which I had never actually considered, and even when I considered it, it still doesn't make that much sense, is that he doesn't have his money at that point. He doesn't have any access to anything for him to get back to Gotham. Not to mention of how he even gets back into Gotham, which I really don't understand. I was wondering if you guys could expand upon that. What do you think? Because how can he get from the middle of the desert to Gotham City? Anyway, love the podcast. Great to hear from you. And I hope that, Austin, you're feeling better. Uh, Best of luck, man. All right. Love you guys. Bye. All right. A, he's Batman. B, he's uh, a ninja. C, he's rich as fuck, a billionaire, and has has. But not not at this point. (laughs) What? Not at this point. He's broke at this point. You don't think he has cash or assets scattered in every city around the entire world? That's it. It's another critique of capitalism because he has offshore (laughs) accounts that not even Bain knew about. See? There we go. He is literally <laughs> one desert walk away from, you know, from a bunch of gold that he can get back to America, no problem. I mean, all he needs to do is just yeah. find a guy on the street, get a cell phone. I can almost guarantee Chris and Jonathan Nolan had this conversation and they were like, who cares? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he just gets there. The answer yeah. is he's Batman. That is the <laughs> answer. Batman. <laughs> you remember when, and we kind of touched on this before, but we didn't go into detail. Remember when the Dark Knight Rises preview came out in front of Mission Impossible 4? And that was when the whole big thing about no one can understand what Bane is mm. saying. Did you did you see that I preview? I did see it, of course. Right, I did. And I didn't, I, did. I didn't understand what Bane was saying. I kind of uh, like that. Though. I kind of liked it too. <laughs> and I remember that Chris Nolan was really resistant to the idea of re-recording Tom Hardy's lines, which he ended up folding and doing because he said, look, it doesn't matter if you understand what the people are saying. Because of the context clues and the tone, you'll get the gist. You'll get enough. And I kind of respect that. Yeah. I mean, Nolan's never been one to sort of walk you through all the steps. He likes to cut into scenes. He likes, you know, interesting editing choices. I don't think he's the type of filmmaker who's just going to tell you how, you know, Bruce got to Gotham. He's just going to he's just going to jump to the actual story. I, uh, I think I, that's insane, though. The idea that you <laughs> think that he thinks that that, oh, it doesn't matter if I have my villain no, he who said speaks that. for I, half. A, what? 
He said this. This isn't just my hey, conjecture. What is no. that scene like? I, do, I don't know. What, but like, here, what, we I, watch I him like go a to a guy to and... <laughs> what, what would that scene be like? He goes to somebody, he's like, hey, you know, can I get a ride to Gotham? Like, it's it would be silly to see. Like, I don't it's know. Like, I don't it's know. like Kenny in South Park. You just get just, enough. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know exactly what he's Look, saying, but the context clues work. There's a lot of issues, plot plot issues with Dark Knight Rises, but I don't I don't have any issues with this one. <laughs> but the thing about it, it's hilarious. Honestly, if Kenny is leading an army and no one understands what he's saying, that is hilarious. If 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 I mean, to me that is a commentary. If he's leading a whole army against Gotham and everyone's like, wait, what did that guy say? Huh? It's like that scene in Life of Brian when everyone's My- like. What did Jesus say? And they're like, he said everyone gets cheeses or something, or bless the cheeses. I don't know. My favorite, my favorite part of watching that before Mission Impossible Four was Aiden Gillen, who plays is the other actor opposite Tom Hardy in that scene. He like acts as if he can understand everything Tom Hardy is saying, despite the fact that nobody else can. I lo- I like that dedication. I like I like that. It's weird and I enjoy it. Well, here's my point. My point is is that I would imagine a similar logic was applied to a lot of these plot holes, and I think there is a sense of being a daredevil here you know if you take a a filmmaker that's radically different from Christopher Nolan but think of David Lynch at a certain point you realize I'm here for the tone I don't care I don't I'm not supposed to know what's going on and I think that sometimes a filmmaker realize looks in the mirror and says look if I'm a good filmmaker and I can capture people with tone with performance with music they're not going to ask those questions but I don't think he pulled it off because people are asking those questions because there are movies that Everyone listening to this podcast probably loves, and you could poke holes in the plot, but we just choose not to because it just works so well. Yeah. It's always emotion over logic. Always go with emotion over logic. Absolutely. And I, it just I kind mean, of bit him in the ass this time. I, I would say case in point is fucking The Dark Knight. There's uh, uh, so many, like that scene, you know, where, where Joker supposedly planted the bomb. And if you really, really, really think about it, you're like, wait, what the, f- it works Like, so how did well. he do that? He's just <laughs> one guy. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> who cares? Yeah. Sometimes, who <laughs> sometimes if the movie's working, we're willing to suspend disbelief. In this case, it just wasn't working well enough. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go to a couple emails. Hit us up at movies at wisecrack.co. So this one is from Rain. The uh, Korean pop star apparently is a fan. Uh, He says, everyone generally agrees that the ending of the film, Batman's lie, is about his sacrifice. And it's at odds with what the rest of the film is saying, that the truth will set you free. This thematic dissonance combined with something Jared brought up, that he enjoyed the film's use of the Lazarus Pit and Bane's line about he and Batman being shadow figures, got me thinking that perhaps the movie chose the wrong literary illusion in A Tale of Two Cities. Bane's line about being born and molded within the darkness got me thinking about Joseph Conrad's classic Heart of Darkness and how it might solve some of the thematic issues. The most obvious way for this illusion to help the film is in the ending. Just as Marlowe uses a noble lie to preserve the memory of Kurtz for his wife, Batman must use a noble lie to protect the memory of Gotham's Knight for the people. This also creates somewhat of a thematic throughline for the arc of Bruce across all three films. It begins, of course, with the death of his parents, where Bruce learns the protection of the law is a lie and he must take Gotham's protection into his own hands. In The Dark Knight, Bruce realizes that the symbol of what Harvey represents is too powerful to discard, so he and Gordon become the keepers of this noble lie. Finally, in the third installment, Bruce's noble lie becomes challenged by radical truth and freedom, but he ultimately realizes that the benefits of the noble lie outweigh the guilt he must bear, and so fakes his sacrifice. I know this wouldn't make for a popular thematic ending, as the films are so political in nature, but it would make the film more coherent in its ending. Other aspects of Conrad's work I see 
well within the films are as in Conrad's motifs of darkness and Kurtz's madness. As Jared said, Batman was having to endure Bane's pain and darkness before he could defeat him and was actually done well with the Lazarus Pit. So just like how Marlowe must travel deep into the Congo in order to locate Kurtz, Bruce must go into the pit to experience Bane's darkness. Kurtz's madness could be used to parallel with Bane's radical truth and freedom. The unbridled freedom that Bane desires will ultimately drive the city into his same madness and darkness. It's not a perfect illusion, but I imagine some of it working well. What do you guys think? So the reason I like this email is because we recently did a video on Interstellar, and that one is very obviously uh, inspired by Heart of Darkness, and they, they even say a Heart of Darkness in the movie, and so I was actually wondering if maybe he was reading two books and just chose the wrong one for this movie. <laughs> uh, I like some of the points that uh, Rain brought up. Thank yeah, you, Rain. Yeah, that was a good, that was an all-around good letter. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, all right, a lot of these are long, but... All right, let's do this. This one is from Anders. Just finished the Dark Knight Rises pod, and the way you guys were discussing the power systems at play made me realize something about this movie I never realized before. We were never told exactly what the Dent Act is in the film. All we know is that the Dent Act, something something Blackgate Prison. <laughs> we're led to believe that this was the act that gave the police the ability to truly restore peace and order to Gotham, but in doing some supplemental research, what I found was that the Dent Act was simply denying parole to all the criminals who were a part of Harvey's mob persecution prosecution in the Dark Knight. So instead of reforming the police and political system to root out and get rid of corruption, they just locked people up and threw away the key. This is interesting to me when put into the context of Gordon's praise of the Dent Act at Wayne Manor. The image of the wealthy and elite praising things like mandatory minimums and harsh sentences for petty criminals would have been a worthwhile idea for the film to explore, as it would have added some sense to how Bane is able to inspire so many people to rise up after the bridges are out. What do you guys think? Could this, could this have been a commentary on things like the mid-90s crime bill and subsequent attempts to crack down on crime without actually reforming the system that drives people into crime? Would this have been more interesting and streamlined than the several subplots in the film? Just the record, I love this movie, even if it could never live up to the hype that The Dark Knight created for it from Anders. I don't know. That's saying something weird that, you know, the Harvey Dent Act is a good thing because it just keeps people locked up. I don't know if I... Uh... I don't know what kind of message that's sort of imparting. Well, the thing I'll say is that I draw a line where I don't I don't fuck with supplemental reading. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that Anders yeah. did the research. But I remember. So what I consider probably the, one of the worst movies of all time is a movie called Southland Tales. Uh, it's a rough one. It's, but, a, it's uh, a rough Richard one. Richard Kelly went for it. He went you, for it, man. Did you go to Fantastic oh, Fest yeah. that year? I went to were, you, were you in the theater oh, with? I was oh, in we the were, audience. We were both there. Where they handed out a comic book that's and they told you the movie is part three? That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to bring up. I was in line for Richard Kelly's Southland Tales, the sequel to Donnie Darko, and in line for the movie, they handed out three graphic novels and said, oh, by the way, the movie is part four. It only makes sense <laughs> if you read these three comic books. And, Fuck uh, that. The, I, the did best, you read them? I did. Because I watched the movie, I was like, "What the hell? What the hell is this movie about?" And then I read the three comic books, and I was even more confused. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> only, only I, did, I did not read them. I was like, "Movies should not come with homework." <laughs> right. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> um, all right, I'm gonna wrap it up. Uh, thank you guys so much for the really thoughtful uh, Dark Knight emails. We'll get to some more of them next week. Um, just a reminder, if you guys want to join me at Austin Film Festival, go to austinfilmfestival.com. Put in the code WISECRACK25 for $25 off a badge. I want to thank my co-hosts, Tommy and Ryan, for joining me today. This was a fun one, guys. Thank yeah, you. This was fun. 
Austin is still recovering. He'll be back in a week or two. Um, if you guys haven't already hit him up on Twitter at Austin underscore Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N, uh, he could still use the well wishes. It's probably a pretty rough recovery. So until next time, we'll see you next week, guys. Peace. I love you.